Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I made the train Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And in this episode, I sat down with Cynthia Nixon. This episode was recorded in her closet. And if you enjoyed this episode, she was out of the closet by then, but I am not I'm never out of bad dad jokes. Um, Cynthia Nixon is a Tony Award winning actress, among other things, actually. She's also an Emmy and Grammy winning actress. Um, we have two interviews. You can listen to our interview at, at Joe's Pub as well. We talked about Sex and the City and the Sex and the City movies um, during that interview, as well as other parts of her career, including her starting out as a child acting. Um, but I really was thrilled to be able to speak to her twice and I wanted to share these interviews with you. She has a bunch of films coming out, including The Only Living Boy, um, which is going to be coming out soon, and A Quiet Passion, um, where she portrays Emily Dickinson. So I will stop talking so you can hear Cynthia Nixon and I. Because the thing that you have to tell them about my closet is when you close the door to my closet, it is a walk-in closet, the lights go out. <laughs> so we're sitting in here on the floor with the door closed because, the, you know, we live in New York City and so there's construction everywhere, but we have candles. So we look like we're at some spooky seance or, I don't know, slumber party. On the, first, stories. on the first sunny day of the year, too, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. yeah, April 1st, April Fool's. April Fool's, we're going to in, in the dark. dark. Closet. Um, Cynthia, it was, it was such a, a treat to have you on the show and I was so taken um, by a discussion we started to have in our, our first interview, so I wanted to continue it. Right. I mean, right. Are, are, <laughs> Cynthia, white, are, are, are white actors allowed to play Othello anymore? Yes. There you go. Not really at the moment. Not really at the moment. Um, and I think one of the reasons that white actors are not allowed to play Othello anymore is that, um, well, first of all, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to put on blackface? Are you going to put on dark makeup? I mean, you know, unless you're Raul Julia, that is what, you know, when Laurence Olivier, you know, he was not in just in blackface. He was in black makeup head to toe. So there's that, right? And there's like, we have such a troubling, scary history in this country, and I'm sure in every country of, you know, um, you know, the white culture, like, oh, here's a Chinese character. Let's cast a white person and like do some eye yes. makeup on them. Do you know yes. what I mean? And actually... Um, Breakfast at Tiffany's, even when we do have someone oh, who's Asian, yes, we decide to right, them. Or, right, right. And, you know, my 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 friend Bruce Norris, who's a playwright, um, I, I, I can't remember what play of his it was, because I don't think it was Clybourne Park, but maybe it was. I can't remember. But it was a play that he wrote, and it had one character of color in it. I can't remember what play now. And it was being done in Germany. It was a big deal for him. And he realized that they were not, he was informed by an, an actor of color who had done it in Europe that they were, that when they were doing it in Berlin or wherever it was, that they were actually casting a white actor and putting makeup on them. And he, he pulled the rights, and, you know. Which is fabulous because there are so many actors of color who are dying to play that role. Or right. So, so I think, role. so I think the short answer to the question of like, can white actors play Othello at the moment is no, because we don't have enough 
good roles, you know, well-rounded three-dimensional roles for actors of color. You know, maybe one day when the, um, you know, society is more integrated and do you know what I mean? And there are enough roles for every kind of a person in whatever category they belong in, then again, white actors will be again able to, to, to play Othello, but, but not at the moment. That's a very black and white issue, pun intended. Yeah. Um, I mean, in an age of globalization where social stratification is um, so nuanced in many ways so that it, you can even whittle down to someone, if someone has cancer, should they play the cancer role? If someone mm-hmm. is Lebanese, should they be able to if play the role gay, of a Mexican? If someone is gay, should, do, do yes. they, do you, if you have a gay role, do you have to cast a gay person? And and also, you know, I think it a bit more touchily at the moment, do you know what I mean? If you, there is an actor out there who you know to be gay or lesbian, are they allowed to play straight people or are people going to buy them, right? So there I feel like... Yes. Okay. Tell me what you think, because this is your now as both an actor and a director. Right. You're facing this from two sides. Yeah. I mean, I look. I think it's. I think it's complicated, and I think, you know, like as an actor, you want to play as many different things as possible. Absolutely. Hopefully, that's why you. You know, there's some film actors that you know I love to watch. You know what I mean? And they do the same thing every time, and you always know you're going to go see that particular person just yes. play themselves and that's you know that's a movie star thing and that's and that's enjoyable but most actors you know go to you know go into this profession to be transformative so um it's a it's a difficult question i mean here's what i would say i i, I would say when you're when you're um like let's like let's take a i don't know like Let's take an older example because it's maybe easier to see, you know, um, like, are you going to cast someone who isn't Jewish to play Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof? Probably not. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, but it happens all the time. I mean, I- it happens, right? Rosie O'Donnell, she did, she did Goldie, and she was, she was terrific. Do you know what I mean? And I, I, I mean, I guess I'm, it, it, maybe it depends on what the role is and what that. I mean, I think you know. With color, it's easier to understand. Like when we say black and white, yes. But however, then like, why shouldn't a Latino actor um, try out for the role of someone who's Middle Eastern or vice versa? Like, well, because we have so few Middle Eastern actors employed outside of playing terrorists, outside of playing terrorists, which is so horrifying that they imagine growing up to do. It used to be that African American women only played maids, yes, and now uh, you know Middle Eastern American men. You, unless you're Tony Shalhoub, yes. you only play terrorists, yes. right? Yes. So, so you know, um, so I would say, you know, so when I, after I played Miranda on Sex in the City, you know, she's a certain kind of a person. She's a lawyer. She's a career woman. She's very assertive, you know, with like a gushy inside, but a, but a brittle exterior, you know. So I would get offered a million of those roles, and most of them were not interesting, and and so it was easy to turn them down. Was that because you'd already played that part? Yes, right. So we think we need we need someone to be a corporate type uh, executive. Oh, Cynthia Nixon, she can do that, right? Um, so those were easy to turn down, mostly because they were very two dimensional parts anyway. Because if, if if you're looking for what I can do, and you think, oh, she can wear a suit, yeah, that's a very surfacey, obviously type, you know, job requirement. Um, but, you know, but then you get to a more complicated thing of, you know, okay, we all know that Cynthia is a lesbian now, right? So... Is that how you identify yourself? 
I, I, you know, it, it's so problematic. I, 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 I do identify myself as a lesbian. I mean, if you want to get technical about it, I guess I'm bisexual. I don't really, you know, I'm not really fond of, I mean, I identify myself as a woman who's married to and in love with another woman, but you know, I feel bad because our language, we're not quite there where we no, have, right. you know, we have he or she, and then we go to they. <laughs> right. And right. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to knowing the language that I'm both supposed to use. Right. Um, but at the same time, I'm excited that you don't have to fit in boxes so much that you can say I'm in love with right. so-and-so. But um, obviously it's, you know, to say I am a woman who loves another woman. I mean, that's a big mouthful. I'd rather just say I'm a lesbian. Yeah. Everybody knows what it means. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So to return back, to this yes. question, to yeah. return to this question. And there is no right answer, but it's a discussion that has to be had. I right. Like. So, so to return to this question of like, so now being offered, you know, lesbian roles, on the one hand, that's exciting. And on the other hand, it can be tiresome. It's like, really? Another one of the, you know what I mean? But I feel like... What are some of the roles you get get offered that are particularly um, cumbersome? <laughs> no, I mean, no, or, I, I don't or, mean that or... the roles themselves. I just feel like, you know, it's like, I have a very good friend who's an actress who's Jewish. And so when the role is Jewish, they think of her. And when it's not, they don't. Do you know what I mean? And it's... it's both... No, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> So it's both a blessing and a curse. Do you know what I mean? But I feel like if you're a person who identifies with some category that is underrepresented in the media, you kind of have a little bit of an obligation to lean a little on that side. Do you know what I mean? And to be sure that actually, maybe I don't want to play my fifth lesbian in a role, but actually, because the lesbian as a character is relatively you know, new on the scene. Emerging. Emerging, right? You want to be sure it, it's done right. Do you know what I mean? I absolutely do. And I, I feel this quandary. I'm not an actor. And so um, part of the reason that I was so excited to interview you is that I entrust someone like you. And there are very few actors who are this good, who are, are able to be chameleons, which right. is the job title. But right. in any field, it's very hard. There are very few people who are really capable. I entrust you to take what I'm struggling with and put it on stage. I think it's complicated. So when I was in my early 20s, I was offered a role that I did in uh, a TV show that used to be on a crime show called The Equalizer. Um, and The Equalizer was like, you know, he was like a detective and he solved cases, whatever. So the role was of a deaf woman. And she was the lead in the episode. And I don't know, some crime had been perpetrated against her. I don't remember. But it was like a great role because it was a deaf role. So I had to do all this sign language and I had to speak the way a deaf person speaks. And, you know, um, and the guy that they cast in the second lead, the, su the supporting part, but like right up there with me, was a very talented deaf actor named Howie Sego, who was lovely to me. And we had a great time and obviously... The amount of time that I had to learn the sign language, I'm sure I look like a, you know, a three-year-old, you know, trying to, you know, ride a bike. I mean, I'm sure I looked, to anyone who actually speaks sign language, I'm sure it looked abysmal. Um, but I was cast because I was a good actress and I had a little bit of, you know, a, a profile. You know, pe some people knew who I was and stuff. And Howie was lovely to me. And at the end of our week or week and a half together, whatever it was... And he said many things. You know, the, the deaf community is a very separatist community. Hmm. What and, does that mean? Um, they really, like he told me a story. He's married to a hearing woman. And 
um, he would tell he would he would tell me endless stories, and he would tell me about his his anger at 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 hearing people and the discrimination he felt from them, and how much he didn't like them. And um, his wife, who was hearing, as I said, said to him one day, "You know, you should think a little bit before you you know keep saying all this stuff because we're going to have a child someday, and that child may hear. What are you going to do when that child?" Is born and you're the father of a hearing child. He said, "Oh, I'm not worried about that. I'll take two pencils and I'll go like this." And he made a gesture as if he was like puncturing his son's eardrums, which of course, obviously, he would never do. But that, you know, that speaks to the how how committed to his deaf identity he was and how much he wanted his world to be a deaf world, despite the fact that his wife was hearing. You know what I mean? So anyway, he said to me. It's been a pleasure working with me. He thinks I did a great job, but he asks in the future if I get offered another deaf role that I will pass, that I will not take it because it's not appropriate, you know. And、uh, you know, I, I heard what he said, and I said, okay, I, I thank you for telling me that. You know, I don't know what I will do next time if this ever happens again. You know. And I feel like that's a you know to me that's like the far end of the of the spectrum. Do you know what I mean? Completely. I mean, even when you were talking before about、um, you know whether so many gay men have played romantic leads over、right. the years, and、um, but not when they were out of the closet. Well, now, right? Like Rock Hudson, Neil Patrick Harris. What big romantic roles has he played? <laughs> In How I Met Your Mother, he was a womanizer. He's a womanizer, <laughs> but that's different than a like a romantic guy that everybody thinks is dreamy. <laughs> he's right? No, he's no Rock Hudson, but he was playing a heterosexual. He was、male. absolutely playing a heterosexual. Yes, yes, and I, you know, and I think he's, and I think. And there、um, are so many people who are still in the closet, in、um, particularly in comedy. I would say that's、uh, the area that I know, right?、Um, where it's the irony, <laughs> right? That、um, whose people who take it upon themselves to be so open still feel scared. It makes me sad because、right. then you realize right. how right. many people in jobs where they don't feel like it's comfortable to come out, and probably it is not comfortable to come out, right? And you would think、hidden. comedy would be less, right? It's、oh、not my like God, the least, right? <laughs> so right. that's why it feels、right. so.、Yeah, I have so much empathy for them in many ways, and then also sadness. I mean, I'm going to do a play this summer that I'm very excited about. That's a three-character play based on Phaedra. Now, Phaedra is one of the great classical roles. This is a modern setting,、um, but it's one of the great classical roles for an older actress. And it's about a woman in the original, in the Greek, and in the Racine,、uh, the French version later in the in the Renaissance. Um, a, a woman who is a queen who falls hopelessly in love with her stepson to the point of death, and he rejects her, and it's you know tragedy ensues. But it's about this enormous, all-consuming, obsessive love of an older woman for a younger man. And Carrie Perloff, who who、uh, runs ACT in San Francisco, she wrote this play, and I was completely captivated by it. I think it's an amazing play. It's an amazing reworking of a classic story of a classic. Classic play piece of theater, but one of the things, particularly as a lesbian, but even lesbian aside, just as a woman who is nearing fifty, you never get to play a role like this that is so fully sexual and is so much about female desire and appetite and and not from a but, but like a very 
powerful, self-assured woman who falls for this, you know, maybe handsome, maybe smart, maybe promising, but, you know, man much her junior, who is actually her employee. And it's like, we're so, you, you know, we're so used to seeing the opposite, of course. I mean, Men absolutely. in their 50s and 60s and whatever falling for 21-year-olds. I mean, we see this all the time. The silver time. foxes. Totally. But so, but, but I... But certainly as a woman of my age, but also as a lesbian, like, I just do not get to be seen in this sort of a sexual light with a man. So apart from loving the play, I was like, oh, I'm doing that play. No, nobody's going to stop me from doing that play. Once you, you came out as being in love with a woman and being a lesbian, did you feel like you stopped getting the same type of role offers? No, I don't. Because I feel like, you know, that's the thing about me. I was never like the the, you know, the sexy ingenue or anything. You know what I mean? Sex in the City came later for me. I was, I was already 30, 31 by the time we did it. Um, and so that was my sort of my sexual period, which was, you know what I mean? But I, I, I've always been the sort of the, 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 the big talking brainiac. I've never been the, you know, the sultry, you know, smoldering. But that seems like a coup. I mean, to me, it's a total coup. To and, be- for, and a coup for us and a coup for Kim Cattrall, who was actually all like almost 40, I think, when she did it. And also to always get meaty roles. I mean, I, I would so much rather. Absolutely. Like, I mean, obviously, I, it would be wonderful to be beautiful and walk through life right, and, and have bubble. everyone like <laughs> all the dialogue be like, "Wow, did you see her? Oh, wow, right." But as an actor, you, I imagine, it would be really uh, disconcerting to stop getting roles immediately. Right. Um, as soon as you hit thirty-five than, or yeah, whatever, yeah. or that require a semicolon. Right. Right. Um, so this is a, a segue to the next question of you. Mm very much identify as an activist and I wanted to figure out how that plays out in your life. What does that mean to be one? Um, how do you choose which causes you can really focus on and and sink your teeth into, you know, versus writing a check and sort of not being... I'm right. sure you're offered things all the time. People came to see you on my live taping and they were like, hey, I'm on the board of Human Rights Watch. Hey, I'm on the board right, of the I International um, Rescue Committee. How can um, we get to Cynthia? And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know. But I thought it would be phenomenal to but I, but I really wanted to ask you <laughs> your feelings on how you choose what you can really um, focus on and do so in a way that, that feels meaningful to you. Right. Well, you know, I mean, one could literally do something every calendar day of the year that would be important and meaningful, but obviously you can't do that, right? Because you, you have, have two you kids, have a job, three, three kids, kids Sorry. right? You have three kids, you have a career. Right, right. You have a, right. So... I would say, I would say the stuff that I, I do falls into basically four categories. Um, and I would say the oldest one that I, I do is, is, um, women's reproductive rights. Is that a problem, that noise? It, we're, we're in Cynthia's closet, and um, Cynthia is so wealthy now that she has several uh, people here just building more <laughs> shoe cases. I'm just kidding. It's outside noise. It's New York. Welcome to New York. A, I think it's the water in the pipes. Okay, but it's tough. All um, right, if you guys, you should check on us after this airs to make sure that we're still here in case a tidal <laughs> wave comes. <laughs> I would have worn my bathing suit had I known that there might be a, a so, water leak. So I would say that the the, the, the stuff that I, I give my time to falls into basically four categories. And the first category is women's reproductive rights. And that goes back to like when I was um, 13, I think, and I was very excited to be invited to participate in a NARAL and National Abortions Rights Action League, um, 
you know, a bunch of actresses reading poems and speak, you know what I mean? I used to go to those. Yes, yeah. And I still do. Yeah. Right? Marches on walk. Barbara Feldon was in that <laughs> evening and like 99 was my idol, you know, and get smart. But, um, yeah, so, so certainly, and I, and whenever Planned Parenthood asks me to do anything, I try and do it. I show up or I send a, you know, send a letter to the public, you know, informing people. So I would say, you know, my mother, um, had an abortion when it was illegal. And, you know, I think it's just really important to keep it front and center. And, um, how, how important women's reproductive rights are and health are. And it's just astonishing to me when I look at my lifetime, the way those rights have not only been under attack, but actually how much progress the other side has made. And particularly if you contrast it with, say, gay rights, which just seems just flying forward, you know, barely checked at all lately. I, I also have found the criticism towards people like I'm, I'm just thinking about... Um in the actress Patricia Arquette, who was winning for Boyhood. And I was so angered that when she mentioned women's rights, she was immediately criticized for not mentioning people of color. And I (sighs) knew that she meant women of color and that she meant LGBT and that the decision to attack her when there were all these other speeches about tons of issues that were important, but she was the only one nailed for it, um, really upset me because I felt like it does get brushed under to be a, a feminist and actually talk about women's rights across, across yeah. ethnicity, color, religion, sexual identity. Yeah. And it was the need to sort of attack and then simultaneously, like, um, you just eat yourself. Like, yeah. it, these are people who probably agree with her if they gave her a I moment. Know. We're, I know. The, I mean, it's probably true of the right, too. But on the left, we're the harshest on our own people. And I have this often with... Um, I mean, I will be very frank. I mean, it is a, a constant issue for me with um, gay versus lesbian, where I see that, um, you know, social stratification repeats itself within cultures as much Completely. as it does um, between them. And so you'll see this bifurcation where, you know, gay men um, are doing so much really wealthier. well. Yes. <laughs> and it's because they're men. <laughs> it's, it's because they're right. It's because they're men. It's 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 less now that they, uh, you know, more and more gay men have have children. Do you know? Yes. Yeah, so that's absolutely right. That's changing things. And but it's also that, you know, women and lesbians in particular seem to go into the nonprofit sector that yes. does not pay, you know, yes. when in so much higher numbers. Yes. And then I'm generalizing because I, of course, right. like don't mean this no, for but every it, individual. But no, there but is. is yeah. So I, I completely understand um, the desire to say, no, we need to have nuance here. I hate when, like, the New York Times will say the Jewish vote. And I'm like, do you know how, how the rest of the world looks at you? Right. And you don't feel that way, right. probably. You're right. talking about a very uh, religious conservative community when right. you're saying that. Right. So I, I do find the limitations of that irritating. But anyway, so going back. So you you have said that. Um, so I would say the pro-choice. Pro-choice. Um, and I would say public education. Yes, and that you've been an advocate for forever. It seems yeah, like. I mean, I I grew up in New York City. I went to public schools. My kids go to public schools. I think it's really important, and I think there is this just horrendous smear campaign against the public schools that's been going on now for decades. Is it a smear control, or is it the, it is the, the, a the, smear campaign? No, no, wait a minute. Or is it the lack of funding that goes to public schools? It is both, but I feel like one comes directly out of the other, right? If you ask. And, and I'm not going to forgive me. I'm not going to have the statistics exactly right. But it's basically like if you ask, you know, random people all over America whether the public schools in America are good or not, about 80 percent of them will say they're bad. And then if you ask 
those exact same Americans, um, do your, do you like your own children's public school teachers? 80% of them will say yes. But I think the question in and of itself is sort of a silly one because it just depends on where you are located. I mean, I, I used to work in schools okay. where there were no books and these children I, desperately deserved more funding and these teachers deserved more okay, funding. But what, I wanna, but what I want to say is, um, you know how they take polls about like how the, how the country is going? Do you know what I mean? And people are either like quite optimistic or quite pessimistic. And that's just sort of what's in the ether and what's being put out there. And I feel like there has been a smear campaign for at least a couple of decades, really longer, really more like 40 years. Wait, let me finish. I am listening. Saying that, you know, the public schools are a disaster. Let's stop funding them. Let's stop throwing oh, wow. good money after bad. And so it's like if we can make people believe, and yes, by all means, there are terrible, terrible public schools in every city, in every community in this country, except for the wealthiest ones. Do you know what I mean? Yes. You can find no, you can find no, you know, shortage of schools that are not doing their job well and teachers that are not doing their job well. But if you look at now versus 50 years ago, we're doing a much better job. And mm. the perception is completely different. And partly the perception is completely different because our schools used to be segregated. And so the people who were listened to about whether the schools were good, they were white, affluent people, and they owned their kids only went to school with other white, affluent people. Yeah. And once that school is mixed, white people with money, whatever color they are, people in the power structure, yeah. start stop thinking of those children in those schools as our kids. And then the people who actually, truly want to defund, want to, to stop public education, want to privatize it the way they want to privatize everything else, you know, they convince people that the public schools are a mess and we should stop. And, that, and it's not for our kids. It's for those kids who can't learn anyway. So the fact of the schools being underfunded is a direct, um, is made possible by, mm -hmm. the smear, by the smear campaign. Now I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's my question to you is, so how do you um, decide to work on this issue? What are the things that you decide to say, okay, I have this I much decide time. to say, look, I'm a person with options who sends their kid to public school because you can get a great public school education. And I want to fight for the public school budget in my in my neighborhood, in my city, in my state, in my country. But logistically, how do you say, uh, how, you know, how much time do I have in a year how do you divide it up? You know, in your it head? depends. You know, when the budget is coming out in New York State, you mm -hmm. you you know, when when there are big fights on the horizon. So I would say an outgrowth of the so so right next to public schools, I also fight fight for progressive politicians because progressive politicians, by definition, fight for public schools. So whether that's like campaigning for Obama, who really doesn't, you know, need my help, you know, me and the, the rest of the world wants to campaign for Obama. But you know what I mean? Camp campaigning for Bill de Blasio, campaigning for the Working Families Party, you know, campaigning for not just the Democratic Party, but the, you know, the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party that really wants to um, fund public schools, who wants to um, make sure that, you know, the kids who who want to go to college can afford to go to college you know that, that I mean, that's that, becoming more and more impossible it's just horrendous but i thought uh, it was progress to see that you didn't have to come out again uh, excuse me you didn't have to come out in support of you know christine quinn or um you know that you could <laughs> you could choose a candidate based on what you thought that right. candidate was going to do 
for a certain population. And not just Christine Quinn. I mean, I feel like we had such a we had such a wide range of candidates for mayor in the Democratic Party from just almost every demographic you can think of. And not just me, you know, many people who, you know, who were like, yeah, I'm African-American, but I'm not voting for the African-American candidates. You know, I love that because it's not great. It's not the question of who's the who's the best of the worst. (laughs) Right. And then you don't (laughs) just have to vote identity (laughs) politics because the fact of someone in your category showing up, it only happens once in 100 years. So you got to vote for that person. Well, I mean, that's a challenge now with Hillary Clinton. And I feel like that was a frustration I felt with Obama, where I immediately uh, jumped on the bandwagon to go with Obama, and I'm still glad I did. However, I was sad to see that it didn't necessarily show up in his own administration. That In terms or, of women? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Overall, I'm really glad I voted yeah. for him, and I don't, yeah. I don't feel too. any other Me way too. about it. But these are all challenges, and I think Hillary Clinton is brilliant and competent in so many ways, but I also think it's sad to live in But it. I think she's a lot more brilliant and competent than she was eight years ago, too. Yes, you which know? is a great way to look at it, because I, I think that sometimes I get bogged down in the idea of are we living in this sort of um, despotic society where we just go back to Bushes and Clintons. Right, right. <laughs> um, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a problem. It is a problem. So, so your, your I would say are pro, so pro-choice. Pro, pro-choice. Um, public education, uh, progressive politics. Um, and then I would say, um, LGBT stuff, you know, and we, you know, my wife and I, we fought very hard, particularly for marriage equality. And she works for Mayor de Blasio now, She right? does now. Is she an undersecretary? I just mm, love that phrase. I don't think so. Uh, she's a, I, I it's a high, le- it's a high level. She's position. got a long title. She's, she's actually has a dual appointment in the Department of Ed and in City Hall. She's so like, she's the, some strategic initiatives. The, I don't know. I like that they're, all of their job titles are, are long sentences. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, it has at least five titles within it. Yeah. Ask her if she'd like to add undersecretary because that okay. was one of my favorite okay. titles. Okay. It sounds like you're under a desk or something. But, <laughs> right? Under a secretary. Um, yeah. So, and, and uh, I, 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 do some, I do some cancer stuff too, but I also feel like... Um, I don't know. I feel like we're doing pretty good getting the cancer word out. Do you know what I mean? Um, people know that it exists. People know that it exists and, and people do such amazing, you know, fundraising stuff. I think it's it, one thing that's important, I think, is to m- more than fighting for, you know, other people fight for legislation. It's very important. But, you know, I think as, as, a, as a person who's had cancer and as a, a daughter of a survivor of cancer, I, you know, I think it's important to tell my story more than fight for specific stuff. That's what I was really getting to is that there's so many worthy causes and clearly you are um, sensitive to, you know, 99.9% of them, maybe even, you know, 130% of them. How do you choose which ones you go after? And then how do you choose how you spend your time on those issues? Well... I mean, I do it. I do it fairly. I, I just sort of take it as it comes, you know. Obviously, when Bill de Blasio is running for mayor, he's running for mayor now. And so so now is the time that I, I fight for him, particularly when he was so, you know, at the beginning when it didn't seem, you know, that's when you need to put your firepower behind him, you know. How many ribbon cuttings would you say? You <laughs> no, I know. Once he became mayor, then no. But um uh, you know, just, just, just getting the word out, that, you know, and, and as I say, with things like education, um, it is cyclical, you know, you know, it's the spring and the budget and, you know, that kind and of thing. So now you're doing a lot of theater and I, I just wanted to ask, like, are you in a position, I've heard, I've heard some filmmakers and things say one for them and one for me. Oh yeah. 
and they'll mm-hmm. pick one project that makes them money to be able to fund right. um, their passion project. Do you know, I always love, um, not that he was ever a favorite actor of mine, I admire him, but Burt Lancaster would always say that, you know, one for them, one for me. And what he said himself about his own career was, you know, when his career was like 40, 50 years, however long it was, and that when he looked back on the beginning of his career and his his money job would be one kind of thing and then his art job would be a totally different, completely, you know, opposite end of the spectrum. And he said when he got into his 70s, he, he looked at what the two jobs would be and they were really like millimeters apart at that point. You know what I mean? And that he was able to, to, you know, I don't know, move the needle, the needles in. And, and, and it's also, it's also very much, I mean, he comes from the studio system, right? So it's also very much a mark of how independent film gained a foothold and a budget. And do you know what I mean? You could yes. actually, you know, um, but yeah, no, I don't think of it that way. I mean, how do you approach your jobs? Like, I don't, I imagine you didn't go into like the Adams family values and, um, <laughs> you know, babysitters or even sometimes law and order is like, God, I really need to get behind this show politically. This is going to be a really tough right. job for me. I, I, I imagine that those might have been fun and they also paid well. Well, Adam, some of those I was in for one day, so it didn't pay that well. But okay. I was excited. I was excited because it was Scott Rudin and it was Paul Rudnick. Um, what were the other ones you mentioned? The babysitters? Well, it was a larger question. Right. Of like, to what extent, you know, now. I really don't. I really, I gotta say, you know. Are you able to pick roles that you really want to do for artistic purposes um, and not necessarily financial? I do. I mean, you know, I I earned so much money from Sex and the City, not just from the series, but then also from the films and from the residuals and also from the. You know, there's stuff like the slot machines that we get money from every few months. What are the slot machines? Well, in Las Vegas, there are sex in the, and, and other places <laughs> where they have gambling. There are sex in the city slot machines. Oh my and so we get dividends from them. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's fantastic. And people I know who go to Vegas, they say, hey, I played your slot machine. And I say, good, you keep <laughs> playing that one, you know? So I feel like, I mean... And I can do personal appearances for money. Do you know what I mean? And it's not a ton of money, but it's, you know. This is so exciting. So now you can really just focus on the, yeah. the roles that you care about. And so what are those right right now? I, I got to see um, a reading, although it was so well done, it didn't even feel like it was a reading, recently of a play that you're directing, a one-woman show. Oh, yes, Stacey Ann's show. Yeah, yeah, that was very exciting. So... So here's what I, I mean. I have so much stuff going on. It's really great. Well, I have the three, mo- four movies coming out. Yes. Right. Yes. And I have this one, this Morgan Freeman, Diane Keaton one, which is so fun. And people are starting to say to me all over, I saw your trailer. I saw your trailer. I saw you, you know. Plug the titles for me. Uh, so the Morgan Freeman, Diane Keaton one was a very New York movie comedy called Five Flights Up about an older couple who live in a great Brooklyn two-bedroom sunny apartment, but it's five flights up and there's no elevator. And I play her niece, Diane Keaton's niece, and I'm their real estate broker, and I'm trying to convince them they have to move. So it's about, you know, aging and real estate and New York and old New York versus new New York, you know, people who were able to live here and have an artistic life and people who are now just like, you know, money, 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 money. You know. Is this going to make it even harder for me to one day potentially <laughs> own an apartment? Is this going to make it harder for me to even rent an apartment that has a dishwasher or laundry so. near it? I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> um, right. So there's that. There's James White, which I think is 
uh, going to be distributed. This is Josh Mann's film starring Christopher Abbott and me about uh, a, a, a grown son and his mother who has cancer. And his mother and your mother passed away the same time, right? Almost the same time. His a little bit before mine, yes. But the year that we made it, my mother had died of cancer and his mother had died, I think, the previous year. I, I, so it's a very, very personal film. And um, it, what was, it looks phenomenal. It's it. really good. And it's, it's really, it's, it's, um, the filmmaking is so gorgeous. The script is gorgeous. The performances are gorgeous. But um, it's really great because I never met his mother, but I think she and my mom had a lot in common, at least in terms of their aesthetics. So I was able to actually wear all these clothes of my mom's and jewelry of my mom's. And, and, and anybody who saw it, who knew her said, oh, you seem just like Josh's mom. Do you know what I mean? They're like Upper West Side Bohemian ladies. Was that cathartic? It was cathartic in a way. And also more than cathartic, I would say sort of more like a tribute, I think maybe, but also it goes back to your initial question of like, who, who has the permission to do these roles, do you know? And even when I was saying, you know, I'm counting on you, I say this as an audience member. Yeah. And I, you are counting on, because there are very few actors, you know, maybe a hundred in the world. And again, I mean, in any field, they're just simply, not everyone's gifted. Right. There, there, <laughs> there are only a limited amount of people who can do anything in any field. Right. Like, I well. would go see Sean Penn do just about anything. When he was around, I would see... Except stand-up comedy. Oh, oh, no, for any role. (laughs) Philip Seymour Hoffman, do you know what I mean? Meryl Streep, I would, you know what I mean? Meryl Streep plays so many roles that she has absolutely no relation to, but it doesn't matter, do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. And so when you have a brilliant technician like that, whatever they want to do, you should just let them do it, even if they're completely wrong, the wrong age, the wrong gender, the wrong ethnicity, whatever, it doesn't matter. But, you know, for, for something is always um, enhanced by, uh, by the person having some experience, whether it's of the culture or, or the, the, the particularities of the circumstance of the character. You know, it, it, it does enhance. I think it's important to look at empathy and um, being able to walk in someone else's shoes versus necessarily identify. And I do think that, that really serious actors do... Uh, and I'm not a really serious actor. I'm a mostly serious actor. Yeah, I've only seen you be funny on stage. So, I'm, but, we'll, <laughs> but, we'll, but we'll, we'll but you know, like the really devote, you know, the, the 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 really top people, you know, the movie stars who have all the time in the world and maybe don't have three children or whatever. You know, they really do such a good job of immersing themselves in the world and and going and and if they don't have a personal experience, going into that world and really kind of living in it for a while and then bringing it to the audience. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a way to get around it. If you are not that thing and if you do not come from that thing that you are playing, go and uh, immerse yourself in that workplace or that culture or whatever. Well, Cynthia, I feel that way about you, so I'm so grateful to have had you, on, you. on the show again, and should I hope I, you'll come I back. Should I finish telling you about the thing? Yes, I? Okay. yes, And absolutely. I'll run to them really fast. No, don't run through them. Okay, so there's Stockholm, Pennsylvania, which is Nicole Beckwith's film starring Saoirse Ronan and me that I think, they've, I think they've sold to Lifetime about a family whose four-year-old daughter is kidnapped and then brought back as an adult. And it's a kind of a, a mother and daughter misery story, if you saw that James Conn, Kathy Bates movie. It's yes. where, where she comes back into, into our lives, and at first it all seems like it's going to be great, and then it seems we realize she's completely bonded with her captor, and I, I, become, I turn into her captor, and I try with absolutely no training whatsoever to regress her the way you would, you know. Um, I try to tear her down and build her up again, and it doesn't go so well. Um, and Is she still reeling from that, do you know? Nicole? Yeah. Reeling from the experience of yeah. making the film? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. 
I don't know. I mean, I think it, I don't know. I think she's pretty pleased with it. Okay. She's able to not actually feel like that happened. Oh, you mean Sersha? Sersha, yes. Is, is Sersha Sersha's like... a pro. Okay. Sersha's a pro. <laughs> you don't take your work home with you? No, not so okay. much. I mean, my wife would tell you something different, but I don't think I do. Um, oh, and then I have a, a, a part in the Adderall Diaries starring James Franco. I play his agent. That's going to be a fascinating film. And that will be a Tribeca Film Festival, which is coming April up. April 16th. Yeah. Yes. Which is also the next live taping of Employee of the Month. No. So maybe well, people you'll should have go to, to both. Choose. No, no. No, <laughs> Cynthia, this is this is mainstream audio okay. podcasting. All right, so then I'm doing <laughs> I'm doing the Phaedra play over the summer. Then in the fall, I'm directing Stacey Ann Chin's one-woman show about uh, her quest to become a, mo- a mom as a single lesbian. And then I'm doing um, another play for the new group in the fall as yet unannounced. So... I will let you know what that is. And then uh, then there's Christmas and who knows what next. Um, well, I really, really want to thank you again for coming on Employee of the Month. I hope you will come back again and again. Um, it is such a uh, privilege to speak with someone who I, I do believe is one of those um, very rare actors who can take on all these roles, and I'm grateful you do it. Well, thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you to Rob Schulte. Thank you to Nora Lynn. Thank you to ACAST. And thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you have a great summer. You can follow me at Katie Lazarus. You can also find me on Instagram at Katie Lazarus. Katie is with the C C A T I E Lazarus, like the Bible, L A Z A R U S. And you can find Cynthia Nixon on Instagram as well, um, or in movie theaters or live in um, plays. She's fantastic, and I'm so glad that I was able to share that episode. If you enjoyed it, please do check out our other episode that was recorded live at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. Um, That's it. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and I will talk to you next week. Have a good one.